Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Mary Crutchfield, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, this is great. Uh, I, I should mention we connected. Uh, you work with uh, one of my neighbors, Sonia McFadden. And I said, Sonia, I'd really love to talk about mental health. She said, well, you can't have me on before you have Mary on. Oh, that was sweet of her. Yeah. So she connected the two of us and you and I had a chance to catch up, I guess, uh, two or three weeks ago. And, and here we are. Here we are. Yep. Yeah. No, I was glad that she passed you along to me because I am a huge advocate for mental health, especially in Hampton Road. So this was perfect. And, and you are quite serious because I see you've got a very serious microphone there. I, I am serious. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> why Why do you have such a serious microphone? Well, I just bought it because I'm actually going to be doing like a, a mental health um, vlog. And it's the first mic I had and it was way bigger than I anticipated when I got it. That's <laughs> no, perfect. So. It looks very professional. That's great. Thank you. I guess we should start at the beginning. Where were you born? So I was born in Trenton, New Jersey. And I was born to uh, my mom and my dad, obviously, but my mom is a dietitian. My dad's a pastor, United Methodist minister. And we started out, you know, in New Jersey, but lived in a tiny little borough somewhere. I don't, I don't remember a lot of that. <laughs> I was that little. <laughs> and so how long did you live in Trenton or that area? We, I lived there until I was about eight, seven or eight years old. And then we ended up um, going overseas. We started out in Kenya. Um, my parents were missionaries, so they ended up, uh, well, they said that they got a calling from God, and so they decided that they were going to move us over to another continent. Uh, a very different continent uh, in terms of socioeconomics, in terms of how the rest of the world viewed that part of the world, uh, but we'll, we'll come back to Kenya in a second. So my wife's from northern Jersey. Trenton, okay. I guess, is considered somewhere between central and, and northern Jersey. Uh, do you have memories of, of Trenton? Or that no, area? not not particularly outside of just we were in this tiny little area, and I'm pretty sure that it was small. I think it was called uh, Groveville, um, and then later Hopewell. And I know we went back to it later at one point when I was in sixth grade, but it was a very tiny little area, and my, my dad was the minister there. So we had a, a parsonage, and I have a few faint memories, like, my mom and my dad decided to have a, a family come live with us that were in, uh, I don't, it wasn't witness, maybe it was witness protection. I don't know. It was something like that where they were trying to home people that were, that were in domestic violence situations. I uh, remember that. <laughs> domestic you know? violence plus witness protection. That's, uh, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, there was a lot going on there. So I do remember having some people live with us for a while. Uh, you don't consider yourself a Jersey girl, it sounds like. No, not at all. I, I mean, I barely had any American geography, so I don't I don't barely know anything about so, American. So you know Virginia Beach and the Hampton Roads area? Virginia Beach really well, yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, so at the tender age of eight, you, your parents, and your younger brother go over to Kenya. Older brother, older brother. One year oh, older. Older brother. One year older. Sorry. brother. I had it in my brain that he was two years younger. Uh, so older brother, do you have first memories of going to Kenya? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the time that we went over to Kenya, it was right when the Hutu, uh, the Hutu and the Tutsi genocide was happening in Rwanda and Burundi. 
and we were in stationed in uh, Nairobi. We were at a Methodist ministry, kind of like hostel sort of hotel, and all the Rwandan refugees were there. And I had just learned a little bit of French in like second or third grade, and I knew just enough to talk to all the little kids. Um, that's where we started. And the only playground they had there was like a metal playground. And the very first thing I did was went and busted my my lip open on a seesaw <laughs> and, you know, trying to find a medical care in Kenya. <laughs> well, in Kenya with a uh, refugee crisis, it sounds like. Correct. Yes, it was it was something else. I mean, at the time, I didn't really understand why there was all these people, you know, housed there. But but I understand now. So when you were in the States and you were about to, to travel as a family to Kenya, did your parents try to describe to you what you guys were about to do? Or is it just like, hey, you're eight, you're along for the ride and you'll figure it out as you go along? Um, they did explain to us that they had a calling and wanted to take us overseas. And it was a different reaction between my brother and I. My brother was terrified and he um, used to keep inventory in the pantry of what was there. And he ate everything in sight and gained all this weight. And our little family pictures to travel overseas or him being like, you know, really miserable and kind of large. And he was, you know, he didn't want to be like the Ethiopian kids on the TV because that's when they were showing all the kids with the flies and, you know, they were sick. And, and I, on the other hand, was like, oh, I'm going to love this. And I was singing along to all the songs and, you know, the little, you know, we're going to go on the mission field. And, you know, <laughs> you know, there's all these little like hymns we would sing, like getting ready to go. And so they actually had a training somewhere in the su Southeast. I, it was, I think it was in Georgia or Tennessee. There was somewhere where we were sent um, with a bunch of other missionaries. We were all preparing to go to different places all over the world, uh, Russia, and, you know, just basically anywhere they had been stationed. And, they they made us pick straws and whoever picked the shortest straw was the poor family for the this like fake cultural experience we were going to have and so my family had a short straw and we had to sleep like on the you know like on these hammocks and we had to pretend we were poor and beg for money from the rich people who were the missionaries that owned the store and they had this whole fake scenario and all i remember is my brother got electrocuted on a on a horse wire fence <laughs> the whole process this was your uh overweight nine-year-old brother at the time. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh, how long was that training out of curiosity and i want to say it was only like a week or maybe a weekend you know it wasn't too long it was long enough to where we got to know the other kids um kind of experience what it was like to be impoverished in a way but those those f families that went through that training were going all over the world Correct. Yeah, we were. Um, we did a short little stay in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, it was kind of near Emory University, and it was um, the General Board of Global Ministries, the United Methodist Housing, was there. So when people came back from overseas, they would stay there. When people were getting ready to go overseas, they would stay there. We had a little short stay there. I don't. I don't even know if that was a full year. I remember it was right before we left for Africa. So did the mission pick Kenya for you and the family, or did your parents pick Kenya? They usually, from what from my understanding is, they pick based on where a bishop needs a minister. I could be wrong, but they pick it, and then sometimes things would come up and they would follow through. Like later, we were after Africa, we were supposed to go to Latvia, and then the civil war uh, broke out there, and so we ended up going to the Philippines. So I, I'm pretty sure the church picks over us. Yeah. Uh, what was education like in Kenya? Well. That's a loaded question. 
<laughs> so we got there and, you know, we go to a place called Meru, Kenya. And my parents are thinking, okay, we're going to put them in, you know, public school. You're going to go to public school because we were public school kids in the U.S. And uh, they put us in school and you have to pay there. So, you know, uh, education is a privilege, not a right. And we're with all these prep school kids and we have uniforms and everybody's speaking Swahili and they didn't speak English. We we brought the national average down for the school because we didn't speak, we didn't speak English. So the schools were brutal. I mean, they used corporal punishment, you know, like rulers, pipes, wires. I mean, it was, it was brutal. So when my parents realized that they were, you know, essentially beating us, we, we got taken out of school and we ended up going to some boarding schools and home schools and things like that. Well, there was corporal punishment, it sounds like, and uh, everything was being taught in Swahili. And all I remember is I'm screaming and, I, and we have no clue. We had no clue what they were saying. I mean, they were teaching math and Swahili and they would teach English and we would do great. But when they were teaching other subjects, we had no idea what they were saying. And how long did that last before your parents realized that you were being uh, taught in, in Swahili? A few, a few months. Um, I think we went through a lot of the school curriculum before they realized that, you know, before it became a problem. Actually, the school talked to my parents about the fact that we needed to be in special tutoring. And so the principal was trying to tutor us so that we could uh, learn Swahili. Wow. And that wasn't in the cards because your parents didn't plan on staying there for the next 10 years, right? They knew no, they were right. right, right. They knew we were moving on. And we did. We went to Tanzania. They speak Swahili in Tanzania, too. How long were you in uh, Kenya? We were there. Oof, I don't even remember. It was a year or two. And then we went to Tanzania. And that's where we stayed all the way up until I was... 14, 15. So you, st you were in Tanzania for a while. We actually stayed a while. Yeah. Yeah. And the same reason you, you moved is because there was a need in Tanzania. Yep. Yep. Same okay. reason. Was Tanzania different at all from Kenya? Oh, absolutely. We were um, near Lake Victoria and it was a very, well, we, we moved around in that area. We ended up staying on a, a Swedish orphanage at some point. Um, but we kind of moved around. It was a very small area. There wasn't a lot, you know, we would call it a, maybe a village when really it was like to them kind of a town, but there were, you know, the water really didn't run except certain uh, days out of the week. The electricity was only sometimes, um, it was very, very remote, very remote. Like just to get there, when we arrived, the British hadn't built a road between Kenya and Tanzania yet. It would take about 16 hours to go from Kenya to Tanzania, where we lived. And then after the British developed it, it took an hour. <laughs> so if that kind of gives you an idea of, like, what we would be driving through, just, like, and, you know, just desert, but, you know, to get there. Wow. Uh, was potable water a problem? Yes, it was a problem. And actually, the water there was not something that you could just bathe in or drink unless it was boiled had already been treated and so um we had water tanks and my brother got a science kit from somewhere in the u.s and he was able to calculate how much water was in the water tank um you know before it goes on but basically we would be like okay let's say it's tuesday the water is going to come we'd wait there with water barrels for the water to come and we would save it to bathe and to boil it and that's all you got so if the water man didn't show up the next week you were just kind of out of water <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, and, and that's bathing. That's for hygiene and for hydration, right? Hygiene and hydration. Yeah, we drink a lot of Coke. <laughs> they do sell Coke there. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine you're, well, I mean, it sounds like you're living in a, I, I don't want to call Tanzania a third world country, even though I would guess it probably is considered a third world country, especially back then. Um, but you were certainly in a remote part of, of the country that you probably felt like it was third world. Right. Absolutely. Oh, very. It's a develop. It's considered a developing nation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, did it change at all while you were there? Um, Besides the road, the Brits built. I wouldn't say that. I well, the road made a huge difference. The road was huge. I wouldn't say a whole lot changed while I was there. Not really. I mean, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of disease, a lot of poverty. Um, if anything, um, I know that. There's more skills being developed by people. I don't exactly know what they were, but I know my mom, you know, was working with some people with coal, uh, you know, uh, charcoal ovens to just make bakery products because you got to realize you don't even have like, you know, stuff that's refrigerated. You don't have that luxury. So they, they had learned how to make some items that they could sell, you know, just little things like that that maybe weren't happening as much when we first arrived. But no, for the most part, I didn't really see anything get better. So mm -hmm. food, it sounds like uh, it was limited uh, in terms of amount and in terms of variety. Uh, right. Water, water, you had to hope that the guy was showing up every Tuesday. Um, medical attention. If somebody got like seriously injured or had a disease that couldn't be figured out, uh, diagnosed and treated locally, what, what did you guys do? Well, you know, when I was at boarding school, I actually, I've had malaria 17 times or more. And I had, uh, I know, I had schistosomiasis, which is a like a parasite that goes into your liver from the water sources. And my brother had it and we'd all pretty much had it. Um, I was at boarding school. I almost died from, from malaria because they were dosing me with the, the chloroquine, the, the drugs that they would give us to treat it. We had to take them every day preventatively and they, they made you feel sick anyway. But then they, you, you know, when they dose you, they were dosing me as if I was a local and it was, I, I didn't have the treatment was, you know, I was treatment resistant in that sense. Like I didn't have the immune system for that. And so they, um, I stayed at a local hospital, which was like horrific because you see all those pictures, you know, about people dying and elephantitis. And I mean, all of that. I saw all of that, and you're basically going to a hospital there, and you're going to die. Like, if you're in Tanzania, you're going because you they, you don't, you can't fix it, right? So my parents were going to helicopter me uh, to another country, but what ended up happening was um, uh, somebody realized what it was that was going on, and I was treated, and they sent me to, uh, like, the, the school that had a lot of American kids there. They had a little nurse hospital center and they ended up treating me there. But when we came back to the U.S., we had to go to the CDC to get clearance to even enter. Well, I, so I've, I've known people that uh, have had malaria and it, it has maling, uh, lingering effects for quite some time, at least at least in the handful of people that I've talked to about it. And I can't imagine having it 17 times. I mean, do you okay. still deal with the effects of having it? I mean, I don't know, right? Like, they don't study this stuff. The only things I found is, like, military vets um, who've had malaria I and mean, some of the things that they describe from having malaria. But I definitely have struggled with, like, chronic fatigue. I've definitely struggled with, like, you know, 
different things that I don't know. I don't, I feel like that there's something wrong with my immune system now. And when I sick, I'm so sick, right? But I was sick so much of my childhood living over there because, I mean, we lived under mosquito nets and taking the preventative medicine. And I used to spit it out because it was gross. And I was a kid. I was like, I'm not taking that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I have lingering effects from it. You either I, I have the worst immune system on earth or the best immune system on earth, I imagine. <laughs> By now, yeah. <laughs> Malaria can't kill me. Nothing can. <laughs> 17 times. Yeah. I mean, you, as far as I know, that's a record. But I, I, I imagine there are people that live in that part of the world that maybe have had malaria. I more. live with it, I would say. I mean, it's just a part of life. Like, if you go out one night without a mosquito night, you can just get malaria. I mean, that's how easy it is. I mean, you pretty much want to live under a net when you're there. And, and there's no solution to it? Well, they came out with the mosquito nets, which was huge. There was a huge uh, push from people that weren't, you know, local to, hey, hey, mosquito nets, hey, prophylactic medicine. Um, they were using, like, quinidine shots when we first got there. They had more upgraded medicine by the time we left. There was a lot of that had improved. Um, but no, because they don't spray. You know, they can't eradicate it. They, they It just pools in the water. Um the only time I think it really was like alarming is when there was a strain of malaria that came through our area that caused encephalitis. That was scary. I never wanted to leave the house when I found out about that, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, people got sick. I remember my dad got it once and he was delirious. He was saying weird things and we didn't know if he would make it. I mean, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know which to ask you, encephalitis symptoms or malaria symptoms. Like it, right. It sounds like encephalitis is more severe if you if somebody can wrap their head around that. What are the symptoms of uh, malaria and, and what do you experience generally when you have it? Well, I just remember um, like my eyes were yellow from being jaundiced, my liver, you know, things like my organs just at some point were not really processing anything, including the medicine. Um, I had chills. I was like shaking. I was, I basically had to lay down for days every time I got it. I really couldn't do anything. Wow. And so I guess the only way uh, malaria is wiped from the face of the earth, earth is if Africa and other parts of the world that are uh, developing end up developing to the point where puddles aren't sitting around. That's right, right. Take the problem that way. And they have to, yeah, they have to take prophylactic medication, which, you know, people didn't have access to medicine. It's kind of like the healthcare system is similar to the education system. It's a privilege, not a right. You know, you had to have money to get treated. And so a lot of the infant mortality rate was, was high. People die at a younger age. And then, you know, you have sickle cell disease, which somewhat pre pre uh, prevents people from dying from malaria. But I obviously don't have sickle cells, so that didn't help me, you know. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like you got a good education in Central Africa? I think that um, a mix between all of the different education I got there, because some of it was um, British-based, I actually had a pretty firm foundation in everything except geography and math. So if you ask me about geography, I have no clue in the U.S. And if you ask me about math, it's a struggle. Like I had to do tutoring forever to try to catch up because we skipped schools a lot. So I was always trying to catch up in math. Uh, so I, I'm I'm going to explore geography a little bit more for you. you. You've lived in the States for a couple of decades now, right? 
I've been here since I was 21 and I'm 38 now. Okay. So 17 years. Yeah. Um, and you've been to other parts of the country besides. See, you did math really fast right there. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I can only tell you how long. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the product of uh, public and private schools in central Virginia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you've left Hampton Roads, right? You've, you've explored part of the country. So I love it. I prefer to explore America more than I have preferred to go overseas again. Yeah, I, I imagine the, the U.S. in a lot of ways feels like a, a foreign country. Maybe not these days for you, but certainly the first few years you were back here. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I have a younger sister. I have two daughters. Uh, my daughters are 16 and 19. I have pretty recent memories of them being 11, 12, 13, 14. Was... Uh, what was that experience like being a young preteen or, or early teen uh, young young lady? In Tanzania? It was pretty. It was pretty brutal. It was pretty brutal because I was blonde hair, blue eyes, right? So even when I was when we first got there, people were touching my arm and they were saying you have fur, and they were touching my hair, and they were, you know, looking at my eyeballs. And they were just really intrigued by it. And then as I got older, I was very standoffish. You know, we were in gated communities. It's not safe. It was very dangerous. We had guards. We had dogs. The guards were armed, not with guns, but like crossbows and stuff like that. Um, and so it was scary. And when we went to uh, public, uh, private school, I mean, the private schools were missionary kids' schools. It was for expats. Those schools were super religious and super rigid. And even though my parents are Christian, they weren't super rigid fundamentalist Christians. And so that was like being in another subculture in another country with people that were really radical. Um, so it was tough. It was really tough. Yeah, I can't even wrap my head around what you went through. Uh, living there. I mean, so when I asked the education question, I was mostly asking formal education, whether it's uh, in a school setting or homeschooling, but I also meant the overall experience of, of living in those countries. I mean, I, I imagine you feel more worldly than the average person. I will tell you that when I first came to the U.S., when I came back, I was 18. I, for one year, I went to L.A., and my brother was there going to uh, Azusa Pacific University, and I went there because he was there. And I had the worst culture shock. I could not believe that. I remember calling um, my aunt and just telling her, you know, all the girls are worried about shaving their legs and getting their nails done and cutting their hair. And I don't understand. There's people dying in Africa. <laughs> and things are so much more important in other places. And everybody was worried about a party and going and getting, dr you know, drinking. And I didn't realize I was in a school that had a lot of really wealthy kids, too. I mean, they were driving Ferraris and... You know, I mean, I was just so out of my element. So, yeah, now I'm, I'm more adjusted than that. It's still a struggle, though. I mean, there's something um, about third culture, being a third culture kid that I think will always be with me, you know, whether I'm here a long time or not. Yeah, and it doesn't help that you went out, went to L.A. <laughs> right. Worst place to go. I mean, looking back, I'm like, you know, I to Virginia. I love it. And I never left. So... Yeah, uh, Virginia still would have been a culture shock, but not the extreme uh, that L.A. had to feel like. No, the culture shock here was there was no one anywhere. Like, where are people? Nobody is walking on the streets. Nobody's talking to each other. It's only inside. It's cold. 
Like, where is everyone? Where are the vendors? You know, like, where are the places where you go to buy food? Like, you know, you have to go to these massive supermarkets and there's stuff everywhere and you're just looking and consuming stuff. That was what it was here in Virginia. Yeah, so so we, we had a, uh, a, a guy named John Dowell. He was a uh, South Sudanese lost boy. He was featured in a documentary uh, maybe 18 years ago. And his experience, I mean, he grew up, he was born and raised in uh, what was Southern Sudan at the time. And he said his first time going to the grocery store was like he thought he was on a different planet. The, the doors opened automatically. There was an entire aisle dedicated to cats and dogs. Now, you were eight. <laughs> and you don't remember a lot of, of, of being. I remember that, though. I mean, tell me about that. What was that? I had like? a similar experience. I would get picked up. We'd fly into Atlanta. We'd get picked up by our relatives who were fairly wealthy. They had these big, you know, Land Rovers or Range Rovers or, you know, Ford Expeditions, like huge cars. And they'd take us down these big highways and they would ask us what we wanted to eat. And they'd bring me donuts. And um, I loved donuts because of that. It was the one thing I always wanted donuts when I was in Africa. And so when I'd get back, they'd have dozens of donuts, like, sitting around. And then they'd take me to the store. And um, one time they... They took me and said, told me to go pick out cereal. And I was there for like 20 minutes. And they came back and they were like, what are you doing? I don't know. Like, where are those like cornflakes? Like, that's the only thing they had in Africa was cornflakes, you know? I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is. It's too much. You know? It was too much. It was overwhelming. And to this day, when I go in large stores, I'm like, it's just weird. Weird. And uh, it's a reminder uh, for me, especially because I, I, di I didn't grow up a third world kid that we have it really uh, well off. We're, we're extremely fortunate in this country. Very, very. So so that trip to Georgia with the donuts, were you 14, 15? Well, we, we have what we call furloughs. So every four years, you're allowed to come back to the United States. For some missionaries, they would come back and they relied on the money that they raised during that summer or that year to be able to go back. For my my parents' mission, they got paid regardless, but they did spend the entire six months of our furloughs back home raising funds. So they would travel all over the U.S. and I would stay with relatives. Um, and so I got to do it a couple times of the donuts and the candy and the gum and everything that we could never get. One Christmas, all we wanted from the U.S. was meatloaf and some craft cheese, mac and cheese. And my mom actually was able to do that. And it was like the biggest deal ever. But she did that that back in the States. And then she did it in Africa. We, somebody sent us a box of Kraft mac and cheese. <laughs> and she was able to get the meatloaf. I don't know how she did it. I mean, they have meat over there. But I guess I don't know how she did it. But yeah, we ended up, you know, little things like that become huge. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, all right. So after one of your furloughs, I guess the family knew that you weren't going back to Tanzania, you were going to end up somewhere else, uh, and you you went to the Philippines. Yes. Did, did, That's did when they... we were supposed to go to Latvia, and then it fell through, and then we ended up being assigned to the Philippines. And that's a that's a uh, another culture shock, right? The Philippines is nothing like Central Africa. The Philippines was a breeze compared to Africa. It was like people spoke English and they were excited you were there. I mean, not because they would throw stuff at us. They didn't know what we were doing, right? So they, they would say Mzungu, which is like, means the white person is going around and around from like the developers of the colonists being there. Um, but it's just kind of like a slang word for a white person. And so 
you know, it was kind of brutal there. In the Philippines, they were like, come, come talk to us. Um, there's people everywhere. It's modern. We have electricity. We have water. We lived in a neighborhood called Beverly Hills. Um, it definitely wasn't Beverly Hills, but that's the name of our neighborhood. It was nice. Were you in uh, Manila Metro? We were about an hour. Well, it took an hour to get into downtown. It probably wasn't that many miles, but we were. it would take about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, it was called Antipolo. So it sounds like you enjoyed your experience. Well, relative to Central Africa, it sounds like you enjoyed your experience more. But did you like really settle in and, and enjoy the Philippines? I really did. I ended up um, falling in love with the Filipino and marrying him later. We're not married anymore. But um, he was a punk rock singer over there. And we had so much fun together. The eight-year-old version of you could not have fathomed you marrying a Filipino punk rocker. I imagine. No. Not even my mom being like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? What did we do to you? I, mean, I, I, I think you were pretty young, right? Yeah, you actually, I decided. Um, so I came to LA when I turned 18. My parents left and went to Taiwan. And I went to LA, hated it. And I decided I'm going to move back to the Philippines. So I did. So I moved back. And I got married with him there, and I got a green card for there. And I did the opposite of what I was And I worked over there, and I lived there. I taught English as a second language, and I worked in a fashion design store um, selling clothes to fashionistas. Did you have interest in fashion, or is that just, it, it was a job? Zero interest in fashion. They were like, oh, I'm so excited. You're white, you're Caucasian. People are going to think we're cool. They're going to think we have, like, a modern store. We're going to dress you up really cute. And then when people come in, you're going to convince them to buy these clothes. And I was like, all right, I'm down. So your second time in the Philippines, how long were you there? I was there until I was 21. And then I came back here. Okay. Yeah. So not very long. Not very long. Yeah. And uh, what was the plan when you came back to the States? I didn't have a plan. I had like $100 and I made a phone call to a friend who lived in Minnesota and she was my, oh, she happened to be my sociology teacher uh, in the Philippines. And she had left the mission field. She had said, none of this, no more. And uh, she moved to Minnesota and she was really financially strapped. But she let me live in her basement for about two weeks. And when I decided I was going to freeze to death because it was so cold. What time of year was it? It was winter. It was winter. And I had all tropical clothes. So I got a job at Home Depot up there. I ended up not even showing up. And then I came, uh, I called my aunt who lives here in Virginia Beach. And she has a, she had a beautiful house in Bay Cliff in a nice neighborhood, like five bedroom house. And she said, sure, yeah, you can come live with me. So I lived with her. And uh, you love your aunt to this day, I imagine. I do. She's like my, my spirit animal. <laughs> like she's the coolest person ever. And she's still in that house? She's not. She sold it and moved into a retirement home. Oh, uh, so she's she's not uh, a spry 50 or 60-something. No, mm -mm, she's in her 80s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, she raised me late for her, you know, for her. That was late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so settling in Virginia Beach, I, I, I guess it had to be weird for the first, I, I don't know, how, how long was it weird for? I tell people when they relocate based on my personal experience anecdotally, it takes a good five to ten years to totally integrate. That's, that's how long it that's how long it took me because 
I I actually worked down at the oceanfront as my first job. So they wouldn't let me be a waitress because I couldn't count money, but they let me be a hostess. And these people who live there, all the students that come on their visas, their student visas, they're from Kazakhstan and Bulgaria, you know, they actually befriended me and they taught me how to pump my gas and how to write checks and how to do all these, real, you know, basically maneuver without a car, without a cell phone, you know, I didn't have anything. Um, they taught me all of that. And um, it went from like that to going to an HBCU. I went to Norfolk State for my associate's degree. That whole culture taught me a lot. I mean, it took me so much time until I went job to job to job to job. And I'm like, okay, I have my footing. I know who I am now in this in this community. I can't think of somebody who's lived a more varied, uh, and the word diverse is overused these days, but what a, uh, a varied life. Yeah, it is. It feels like a thousand years. <laughs> It sounds like some lows for sure, but it sounds yeah. like you overcame a lot too. And it, it, I imagine it makes you a stronger person today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The five to 10 years uh, to integrate, that's for a third world person though, right? That's I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, um, when I was in LA, just, I, you know, we did some studies. I was, I, I got a job working for a Filipina who was a doctorate nurse practitioner and she was studying homelessness in America, but she was also studying Filipinos that migrated here. And she found uh, they were studying the, you know, the term acculturation. We actually found in the research that, that she was doing that um, people actually, the longer they stay in a culture that's not theirs, the less integrated they become. Mm. So there's, there's a piece to that that I also feel, even though I'm not Filipino, it's the longer I'm here. I still don't, I mean, I know who I am and I know my community and I know where I stand in that sense. But in terms of actually, like you weren't raised here, you didn't have the same values. Like I don't even think the same way, you know? Do you think that will be true when you're in your sixties? I do. I do think so. Yeah. So that's, it sounds like something for the rest of your life. Right. And I don't yeah. know that it's necessarily bad, but, but I think the, the typical person wants to belong. Correct. Yeah. I mean, third culture kids have a lot of uh, books and a lot of uh, literature about that grief that comes along with not being in a specific culture, you know, not not belonging, not being a part. Um, <clears throat> that's partly why I work in mental health is because I, you know, I, I did a video for my own website and basically explained like the number one thing that I believe in above all else when it comes to mental health is connection. I mean, I wouldn't have survived if I didn't have the Bulgarians and the Kazakhstanis and the Filipinos and the, the, the you know, all the people at the HBCU. And I even lived with a military couple that said, hey, you don't have anywhere to live while you're in school. Come live in our house, you know? And I mean, it was just incredible. I had so many people that like plugged me in everywhere. Uh, were there any non-military Americans that helped you? Lived with an older guy named Rich. I don't even remember his last name, but he used to take a little six pack of beer and drink at a swimming pool every weekend. And he let me rent a room from him for $400 a month. And um, I had this guy who I'm sure, you know, now that I'm looking back, was definitely selling cocaine, but he sold his car to me for $500. <laughs> <laughs> he's a crap, but it worked. And then he would fix it for free. And, you know, I don't know. I just, so many cool people that were just there. 
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's quite quite like somebody who's uh, using, did you say selling drugs, selling cocaine? Yeah, selling and probably using. I mean, now that I think about the places, like we went to a trailer park and there's a guy with a snake and a gold chain. I'm like, looking back, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> so I'm alive. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, my my view, and this is stereotypical of a coca somebody associated with cocaine use and selling. Uh, they're probably not going to do maintenance on the car for free, but it sounds like this guy did. Yeah, I mean, there's people that did so much for me. I can't. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable when I look back. I'm like, you know, people help you when you're down. That's what I. That's what I learned from it. Is like, I mean, I was never homeless. I was never on the street. You know, I always had a place to stay. Somebody always let me live with them. They, you know, I did a lot of bartering, like, for services. I was a nanny for a while. I mean, I, you know, I really was helped out by the people in this area. Uh, but you've started your own company. How long ago did you start your... Uh... Five years ago. And it's, I, my impression is it's doing fairly well. Yeah. So I opened, the, it's called Leva Psychiatry, um, which is Swedish for to be alive. Um, so I, I founded Leva Psychiatry five years ago and yeah, it's, it's been an amazing adventure because not only is it my business and my livelihood, but it's also like the one way that I was able to give back, you know, to, to the community. Yeah, that's great. Um, are, is that, is that your background? You said Swedish or Swiss for Leva? Swedish. It was just a name that, that we came up with. <laughs> yeah. It was just a random two syllable word. Well, it, it, it works for you. Uh, and you have a few folks working at, I'm saying Leva. Is it Leva or Leva? Leva. Leva. Uh, you have a few folks working there, right? How did I you, do. I'll use Sonia as an example. How did you connect with her? Well, Sonia was actually uh, looking to be a student. So she was going back for her psychiatric nurse practitioner uh, degree. And she had called um, and asked if she could be my student. And at the time, I wasn't really taking any students. But I had a brief encounter with her on the phone. And I looked over her resume. And I was like, this woman is bright. Like, I have to meet her. I have to, I have to let her, you know, we have to have this exchange. And then after we worked with each other, with her as my student, I wanted to hire her. So wait a minute. You, you were teaching folks one at a time or in small groups? So what I do um, for the, the students, um, like while I'm seeing clients, I teach them how to do that. And so they will see people with me. And then when they get independent enough, I'll let them see people without me. That's, that's great. It's, I mean, it's fun. It's, it's a best way to get to know somebody really well and decide if you like them before you like want to do business with them. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I was a kid, I'm, I'm not uh, in my 30s. I'm in my 50s. Mental health was not something anybody talked about. I, I was probably in my, my 30s before it, it was a concept that I at least loosely or at a high level understood. As a 54-year-old, as a I still don't fully understand uh, trying to improve your mental health. So can you give me the layman's version of trying to improve your mental health? Understand this. Huh? <laughs> what do you mean you don't understand that? I see. Mean, I don't understand that. <laughs> I need you to tell me. I I really I I uh I understand physical health. Um, I well when when you say or or I say mental health, does that include uh emotional well being? 
Yes, yes, definitely. And it's and it's the whole person. It's physical. It's the mental, the emotional. All of that's involved, right? Essentially, our mind. You know, our experiences, our past. You know, our our personalities, whether it's nature versus nurture, or both. We're a product of our environment. Um, there's so many things in our life that that kind of teach us this default network. You know, this 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 mode of we should do this or we shouldn't do this or if this if we do this, then that will happen. And there's so many things in our lives that we come into contact with that teach us these things. You know, that are incorrect. You know, and it can be actually very damaging. And so. When you're dealing with, when you're, when you're trying to improve your mental health, you know, from a standpoint of, let's say you don't really have anything that's significant that's happened to you. Let's just say you want to improve your mental health. You're, you're really taking a look at your mind, your relationships, your function in the world. Are you, you know, are there things that are not serving you anymore? Um, and then it goes all the way on this continuum to like severe functional impairment where someone can say, okay, I can't work because of this or I can't function because of this. Um, that's, that's really when, when it starts becoming noticeable where it's pathologic is when it's, it affects your, your function. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a spectrum uh, on one end near perfect mental health and the, on the other extreme trauma and you're, you're lucky to be able to function at all on a day. Right. Right. And, Absolutely. Is your, is your practice serving that entire spectrum? Yeah. So, you know, I specifically really, um, just because of my, my own family's experience with addiction, I really wanted to focus on addiction. And then I had some additional training in eating disorders. So I, I, you know, work in that whole realm, but you gotta, you gotta realize that this is what I learned about our culture here is the diet culture and what we've been taught about food and our relationship with food and our bodies. I mean, it's like rampant, the, the disordered eating and, and relationship with food. So I have a pretty broad spectrum between those two, you know, those two areas, but I will see someone who comes in for grief or someone who comes in for anxiety and depression. Um, but you know, we're all just humans, you know, I like Ram Dass. I don't know if you know him, but yeah. Ram Dass says we're all just walking each other home. And that's really the approach I take in my practice is I'm not really the patient, the provider and you're the patient and I'm just going to treat you. I really like the whole, you know, idea that we're, we're just humans together sitting in a room and I've been educated on some things that, that might help you. Or I might see it a different way than you see it. You know, I like that approach better than you know, like here's some medication. This is the right way to do it because there is no right way, really. Yeah. So it's two people problem solving, uh, and and both of them are focused on one of them, and one of the two happens to be uh, educated and well practiced in it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you find that? Um, and, and I'm I'm not going to for this question. I'm going to be more generic than just addiction and uh, nutrition and diet. And I may be using the wrong term there. Um, do you find that people that are doing well in terms of their mental health tend to, to want to stay there? Or is it people that really are in a, in a not so great place and really want to get to a better place? I actually feel so fortunate because now that I've been practicing in this area for about 10 years, I have people all across the spectrum. So I'm, I've gotten to the point where I see people that I like watch them have babies and, you know, like it's really cool. So some of them, we just have such a good rapport that our relationship has lasted to where, Hey, I'm just doing a checkup because things are okay. 
all the way to, you know, like the local National Alliance of Mental Illness calling and saying, hey, we have someone in crisis. We can't find a single provider in the area to see them in the next month. And there's so many things going on. Can you please see them? So it's it's a whole wide range. It's almost like emergency mode during COVID. I mean, it really, really impacted us. We were just nonstop crisis calls every day. I would say prior to COVID, it was very much more like routine maintenance with some new patients that had some complexity. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, my guess is, and you, and you alluded to it there, if not, you, you said it, like before the pandemic was uh, declared, I imagine if you if I wanted to go see a mental health professional within a week or two, I, I could uh, go see them. And if I had a real emergency, uh, I could see them relatively quickly. Post pandemic, I heard horror stories of uh, people not being able to see folks for several months. That was um, terrible. Yeah. yeah I so actually got, I was actually interviewed by, uh, is it Kathy Lewis from NPR? Anyway, someone from NPR called and were like, look, you're working in mental health. We want to interview you. Uh, we just need you to give a blurb. And, and the whole, the you know, the first part of the interview was someone from Eastern Virginia Medical School saying, look, we're in a crisis. The rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, everything's gone up. And then I came on and I was like, yes, eating disorders are rampant. Kids are at home doing calorie challenges on their phones, watching social media all day. And we can't get anyone in. You know, we can't we can't work any harder. And, and all these older doctors that were um, not used to all the telehealth and all of the uh, technical stuff, they retired. They retired right in the midst of COVID. So, yeah, it was really, really tough. I mean, even post-pandemic, it's bad. It's getting a little bit better. But I would say people are still waiting a couple months to get in. Yeah, and, and for some parts of that spectrum, two months is too long. Correct. Yeah, yeah. If you're in crisis, you can't wait two months. You know, well, are, are there places people can go when they're in crisis and be seen effectively right away? I mean, can they be seen? Yes. Effectively questionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of emergency services that are in place. Like they rolled out the 988 line instead of 911, which is supposed to, you know, hook you up to mental health crisis. But that has so many things that still have to be worked out. I mean, you could even wait on hold for hours with 988. I mean, it's they haven't they haven't figured it out yet. The spirit of 988 is is in the right place, but yeah, there, right. there's a lot of process kinks they're going to have to work out. I imagine it's going to take a while. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and so you feel, even though you're a third culture kid, and I said third world earlier, I meant third culture. Um, I, was like, I think he knows what he meant. <laughs> yeah. I, I was in the spirit of what I was asking was definitely yeah. uh, coming from the right place. The guy I started this podcast with is a third culture kid. He's 28, 29 now. Um, but he lived all over the world and didn't really live in the States. I think they were in Texas for a couple of years in his first 18 years of life, but he didn't really spend any time in America until he went to college here. And when he was describing the challenges he had, I'm like, oh, come on, man, you can get over it. And the more I got to know him, I'm like, that's real. I don't have, I don't have a deep appreciation for it, but I certainly have a, a better appreciation for knowing him. And certainly this conversation is, is, helping me understand it even better. Like I, I'm currently working on that with um, my parents, you know, I'm working, my brother and I are working on that. I'm trying to, because they were obviously from here, right? Born, raised in the U.S. Even if they traveled, it's like trying to uh, de-minimize, you know, like for them, like, okay, you know, this, you know, it was just, 
your kids, you're figuring it out. It's like, it's really hard to get adults to understand what that is really like. Especially if they haven't experienced it for themselves as children. Yeah. Yeah. What's your relationship with your parents these days? I mean, my parents live in Sandbridge, so they moved here to Virginia too. Okay. Um, I love the area that they live, so I go see them. Um, we're still navigating the waters of like, what is it like to live around your parents when I was in boarding school a lot and I didn't live around them. So we're, we're still navigating those waters. Is your brother in the area as well? He is, yeah. He moved to Chesapeake. He's a videographer. Um, it's kind of cool because he did all these narrative documentaries as a young adult so that he could help missionaries raise money or, you know, tell a story about the amazing things missionaries are doing. But he ended up in his career becoming a videographer. So, Mary, your parents, your brother and you have settled in the Hampton Roads area in part because it was too cold in Minnesota. And you have an awesome aunt. It literally was just because I came and never left. I came and I was like, after my husband left and we got divorced, I was, you know, I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go somewhere. I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to California because my brother's in California. And then I met someone else that I'm still with this much time later. You know, we're not married, but we love each other. And um, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to see how this works. And so I, I never left. And then my brother, I was like, you know, Justin, you're struggling out in California. You don't have anyone. There's no family. You have no money. There's nothing. The jobs are so hard to come by at video, uh, videography. She really come. So he came. And then his girlfriend came. And then she got a job in HR. And then at one point, me and my brother and his wife and my my significant other, we were all at Eastern Virginia Medical School together. <laughs> And then, you know, it's kind of like I had the roots because my aunt was here. So then my brother had some roots. And then, you know what I mean? It kind of spread that way. And then when my parents' uh, term ended up in uh, Taiwan, they, they said, you know, where should we go? And we were like, well, just come here. So as a third culture person, I will tell you that by law, you're legally married. Because I'm pretty sure Virginia is a common law marriage state. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Actually, I don't know that for a fact, but exactly. there are common law uh, marriage states out there. Right. And I think most of them settle around seven years. If you've been with somebody for seven years, you're effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been together about 14, I want to say. Yeah, so you've more than doubled the uh, the requirement. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. All right, cool. Well, I asked a fun question uh, that I got from a, a buddy of mine. We, we probably asked, uh, I don't know. 80% of our guests this question. And it's meant to be a little bit more revealing about who you are. Um, and yeah, you're my first third culture person that I've recorded. Like the, the guy that I started the podcast with, we never uh, released anything we did with him. So I can't wait to hear your answer to this actually. No, uh, so, so you, no you're, you're, you'll be fine. This is, this is actually a pretty easy question. It, it will re okay. require a little bit of thought. Um, you you are you have your own talk show. I think it's like a daytime talk show, a night, a late night talk show. It's your talk show, but you only get to do it once. You have an hour, hour and a half for this talk show. You get to invite the guest, um, and remember, it's one time only. But this is a really special talk show because your guest can be alive or dead. They can be famous, not famous. They can be friends and family. They can be somebody you've never met. 
your talk show can attempt to be entertaining or thought provoking or helpful. It's whatever you want it to be. Uh, you you're going to invite one female guest, one male guest, and a musical act. Who are your guests? Ooh, okay. Joni Mitchell is my musical act. All right. Nice. I don't know why, but I just absolutely love her. I grew up listening to her. The album Blue. And she sings the song about California and being homesick. And that's just like a solid, a solid song. And I would love to see her when she had the really high-pitched voice um, when she was younger. Um, I think because I do actually, I am like a huge... Uh, proponent of third, like advocate for third culture kids. You know, I even have a friend uh, opening up a whole nonprofit to try to help them transition. Um, I would say I probably would want, want um, my friend Sandra, the one that took me in in Minnesota to be the speaker, the female guest. Okay. My sociology teacher, she's just brilliant. And she she's just powerful that she left the mission field and that she, she just... I don't know. So that would be my female guest. My male guest would be my brother. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, because he doesn't speak enough about the things that he needs to speak about loud enough to a crowd. And he's so brilliant. Tell me more about his brilliance. I mean, he has this, you know, have you ever met someone who's just really comfortable with who they are? Um, like, there's no, there's no small talk and fake nuances and there's no, like, BS. It's just, that's who they are. And they're not even going to try to sell themselves to get a good job because they just know their work and they know they're good. Like that's, that's the brilliance behind him. It's kind of like that indifference towards trying to be great. He's just great. Um, he also is brilliant because, um, I watched him do videos of me when I was like 13, 14. He would film me in my mom's slip, like with pearls being Celine Dion, like singing, like, <laughs> And um, I watched him go from like that, getting a pre-made computer and, and, you know, camera to like building whole computers, building whole sets, building whole ideas, like building people's vision and being able to do it. And it's just all right there. And he doesn't even talk about it. He doesn't even yeah, say so a word. He's, so he's truly brilliant and he doesn't say a word about any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I think most people wish they were. At least, I mean, that that appeals to me. Who wouldn't want to be brilliant and then just, like, be so confident about that you never have to talk about it? Yeah, he's not, like, narcissistic. He's not selfish. It's just there. It's just the way he is. That's that's a beautiful thing. And if I can get him to talk about third culture stuff, you know, like his experience, I think that would be really powerful, too. Because, you know, a lot of the males don't talk about it as much, I would say, as... You know, well, me, females. If I talk to your brother, would it be like pulling teeth with him or would he open up pretty quickly? He'd open up. Yeah, I think he would. Okay. Especially if you encouraged him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not like shy in that sense. He's just, he just is. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. There's a word for that. There, There is a word for that. I can't think of it right now. Uh, but it sounds like if you ask him a question, he'll answer it. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. All right. Uh, so from a mental health perspective, somebody who is on the near, I don't want to say near perfect mental health, but they're, they're in a good place. How would you describe a good place in terms of mental health? 
I think a good place is um, when you can wake up knowing that you're doing what you can do, right? You're doing your best. You're doing everything in the, self, in, in the way that you're trying to take care of yourself. And at the same time, you're still able to maintain your relationships with other people without treading on someone else or them, you know, bothering you, you know, having appropriate boundaries. I mean, I will tell you that I actually don't get to meet a whole lot of people because of my work that feel that they're doing mentally well it's very rare that i'll have someone come in and usually it's a parent of someone younger that comes in and says what you said earlier i don't understand what is this all about and i can say that the people who who describe that haven't usually had a lot of trauma in their lives are a lot of tumultuous like their upbringings aren't very tumultuous i mean it's not a case across the board but um you know i don't see those people so i don't ever have to say anything to them yeah, and, and yeah, it's a fair point. Um, if, if you are ignorant of how to care for your mind and, and mental health in general, it means you're probably uh, lived a fairly fortunate life. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, so, what so are you going to be doing this for the next twenty, twenty-five years? You think? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, you know, you were asking about the mic. I'm wanting to do a video blog uh, about you know, having a practice, seeing patients every day, being a nurse practitioner and mental health. And I want to put that information out there. So I think that'll be a part of what I'm doing too, um, is trying to incorporate a little bit more like media, not just patient care. Yeah. Well, I get your name out there and then you'll be exposed to more people and you won't feel the, the third culture thing as, as strongly if you put, if you put yourself right. out there a bit more. Right. Yeah. And you'll have, yeah, putting yourself out there is good and bad, right? Sometimes, you know, if you put yourself out there too much, but um, I, I feel like I do pretty good with it. I made a, I made an agreement with myself that if I had opportunities that came up over the last two years to speak, I would. And I've been fortunate to speak a couple times publicly about my mental health journey, like my personal journey, and also um, just about educational stuff that has to do with mental health. Are you exhausted at the end of each day or are you uh, energized? Uh, it depends on the day. <laughs> There's so many times I look at my schedule and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be rough because I know everyone, I'm, I know the pe everybody I see, I know really well. And it might just be that like, there's just some really heavy stuff, you know, all ending up on one day. And those days I have to take better care of myself. Um, but it sounds like you don't intentionally schedule based on, uh, who's coming in and, and the, the, the weight or the gravitas they're coming in with. No, I sometimes, I sometimes do. Like if someone calls me and I'm like, Oh, let's just do it on a different day. Like, you know, I sometimes do that. Do you find that you're as effective on zoom as you are in person or no, no. In person is the best way to go. In person is better. And I have like, I'm one of the few people that really like I kept in my office. I have a huge overhead and I still pay that every single month because I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that connection. You know what we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, is, is the state, the perfect state of being contentment? Is it happiness? Is it some combination of those two things? Um, you mean just in general, like for humans, like yeah. what I think? Yeah. I think, yeah, it's just it's just being okay with what you are in the moment, which is incredibly hard to do when you have a lot of thoughts in your head. Yeah, it's always on, right? Unless you're sleeping. And I guess if yeah. you're sleeping, you have other stuff that's happening in your brain that you can't control. 
uh, and maybe for some uh, not remembering. Well, can I ask you a weird question? I've already asked you a few weird questions. Sure. <laughs> uh, should I worry about having uh, strange dreams? No. So most people do have dreams or nightmares, and we don't actually consider it to be a huge concern unless you're falling asleep during the day or you have some weird muscle paralysis or, you know, but strange dreams usually are like, it's, it's your brain telling you stuff that maybe you've been exposed to or you're worried about. And sometimes people remember them. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. I, uh, I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but when the ones I do remember, they're, they're all very strange and I don't take them super seriously. I imagine I'd drive myself crazy if I did take them seriously. You try to interpret them. Yeah. Yeah. So you would suggest trying to interpret uh, dreams? It's fun to do. I think there's a lot of like theorists who do believe that you can you can look it up, you know, and say what does this mean? But I mean, it's all the it's all suggestion, you know. And with suggestion, you can pretty much come up with anything. So, you know, I think at the heart of everything, it's really trying to figure out what what it means to you, you know, what you want it to mean in a sense too. Yeah. I I guess as a way of uh, wrapping a bow on our discussion here, when you think of your own mental health, what, what are the things you're doing to care for your own mental health? Oh, man, I have a long list. <laughs> hit, hit, hit me with the highlights. I, I get regular massages. I eat donuts when I want donuts. I try to get 20 minutes of sun a day. I, I work out in virtual reality, which, by the way, I'm super passionate about. Okay. Virtual reality is really good for your mental health. V VR is a big component of good mental health is what you're saying. For me, for me. Okay. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I have seen a therapist for years on and off, um, and I do take medication. Yeah. Um, so I, I have family members that are, um, are, are seeing a therapist, and they are on and off medication depending on what's going on. Um, as, as a family member of, of folks that are on medication, how should I think about those meds? Because they don't work for everybody, right? Well, what, what do the meds typically do? Are they, are they well, I'll, I'll stop talking and let you answer the question. What do, what do the meds typically do? So, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about it because the, the, like, the lay person will think about um, mental health as like depression or anxiety. This is a depression med. This is an anxiety med. But as like a pharmacologist, like a psychopharmacologist, I think about brain pathways and brain circuits and what's overactive and what's underactive. And does this person need more serotonin? Is it more norepinephrine? Is it more dopamine? Do they need to calm down? Are they not sleeping? So there's such a wide range. And that's kind of where things get lost in the mix when people go to get mental health help is that if they're getting it from primary care, they don't always ask those questions. They don't always figure out if they're treating the right things. And so we usually see people after they've been on five or six different meds or seen five or six different providers. But the meds are supposed to help life be more manageable. That's it. They don't fix everything. I mean, unless you, I mean, even with schizophrenia, even with something as severe as hallucinating, paranoid delusions, all of those things, it's supposed to make life manageable. It can't take away all of the hallucinations. It can't, you know, even for those conditions, serious mental illness, um, they only help. They only help alleviate some of the suffering. Yeah, they're, they're, it sounds like they're not meant to be a solution, but uh, intended to make things better. Much better. Yeah, much more livable. I mean, I can say personally, from my experience, if I'm on the right medication, 
I'm able to, I feel like myself, I'm able to function in a way that's like healthy for me. And if I'm not on the right medicine, I'm struggling and I'm doing 2000 things more than I should need to do just to get through the day. Got you. Well, this has been very enlightening, Mary. I, I, I think I want to talk to your brother on this podcast. I think okay. I want to talk to uh, the uh, your friend in Minnesota. Is she still in Minnesota? Yeah, she is. What well, she's in South Dakota now. That, that's an interesting move. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but, you know. Sioux, Sioux Falls is just as cold as uh, most. It's cold. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, you moved to a warmer part of the country. You're you're near water. Do you like being near water? Oh, yeah. I couldn't go without it. That's another reason why I didn't move. I mean, there's something about the salt water and the, the, the breeze that comes off the water and, and sunlight that, it just seems more powerful near water. Yeah, no, it's not the tropics, but, you know, it, I get remnants of that during the summer of, like, the hot, you know, just drenched in sweat, you know, be outside. It's great. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Well, Mary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm glad Sonia connected us, and, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate it. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.